Today's scripture reading is from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you for again for the privilege of worship. We thank you that... Uh, We can come here on a Sunday morning, Lord, and be reminded of probably the most essential truths we'll ever need to hear, and that is the goodness of your gospel. Uh, Father, we confess that our hearts are full of noise, lots of voices, lots of anxieties, Lord. We pray that uh, you would silence all that noise and help us to hear your voice uh, this morning as we uh, think and consider on your word. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Uh, many of you, if you know me at all, know that uh, I've grown up and lived in Baltimore uh, almost really my whole life. And uh, one of my favorite Maryland traditions, just like many people who've grown up around here, is to have crab feasts in the summer. We're almost there. I feel like we're just a few months away from starting to have some of those crab feasts. And I'm already uh, starting to think about them and getting excited for, for having crabs. My uh, My grandparents... Uh, used to host these massive crab feasts, uh, they would actually take a ping pong table and they would put uh, newspaper all over the ping pong table and then they'd kind of all gather around the table with their friends and their families and have crab feasts. My parents, of course, uh, did a very similar thing. And uh, if you get to know me at all, you'll probably be invited over our house at some point uh, for a crab feast. But one of the things I have to say is I believe, and and you can disagree with me, but I believe that there is one essential element to hosting a crab feast, okay? One essential element. It's not Natty Bo, it's not not even people, and it's not even crabs in some weird way. The most essential element, at least in Baltimore, to hosting a crab feast is having Old Bay, okay? It is the most important thing to having a crab feast. In fact, there have been times where I've gone to other parts of of the country or other cities, and I've been tempted to uh, order crabs or crab cakes or something seafood-like, and I'll look at the waitress and say, well, is there Old Bay in it? And she or he will look back at me and say, what's Old Bay? And I'd say, need say no more, right? Because that is the, the most essential element uh, in all these things. Well, uh, in the book of Colossians, uh, Paul, the author of this letter, uh, makes another and much more important and much more cosmic statement about a very essential element. In short, he says that Christ is the essential element in all things. The story cannot be written without him. The play or the show cannot go on without him. He is supreme. He is preeminent. He is the essential element 
to God's cosmic plan for the world. And this morning, what I'd like to do is just very simply look at the supremacy or preeminence or essential element of Christ on three fronts, looking at his supremacy in the world, uh, his supremacy in the church, and finally, uh, his supremacy in our lives. And these are the things that Paul tells us in this passage. The first thing we see, we see uh, in verses 15 to 17, we see uh, Paul making an argument for the supremacy of Christ in the world. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and all things hold together. You see, what Paul does in this passage is he, he circles the drain a little bit in the sense that he starts with talking about Jesus on a cosmic scale, as big as we can think of. And then what he does throughout the passage is he boils it down to what it means for our particular lives. But he starts with Jesus on this big scale. He starts with talking about Jesus as supreme in the cosmos. And when he does, he begins kind of scratching at or exploring this kind of mysterious theological character to the person of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that uh, in the scriptures that uh, uh, God the Father as a being... Uh, dwells in unapproachable light, and he dwells in perfect holiness. And what that means is that God the Father in his holiness is just so much greater than our minds can even comprehend. The scriptures tell us in the Old Testament that, that you couldn't look on God and live at the same time. In fact, at one point, Moses, is at, Moses asks God the Father, can I see you? And all Moses does is he gets a glimpse of God passing by. He sees the very back of him. And as a result of that, Moses' face glowed for weeks on end. See, God the Father in the scriptures is, is shrouded in all sorts of mystery and majesty. But what Paul says is that Jesus reflects God, his Father. He says he is the image of the invisible God. And what Paul is saying is, if you want to know what the character of God the Father looks like, then look to his Son, the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals to us what once was shrouded in all sorts of mystery and majesty. Paul then talks about how Jesus uh, was present at the time of creation, that somehow Jesus was even the agent of creation. And not just is he the, the at present at creation or the agent of creation, but he is the person that preserves creation. He holds it all together, is what Paul says. In, all, in him, all things hold together. And because of all of these reasons and many more, Jesus is supreme over all things. There are visible realities that Paul talks about that, that we traffic in day in and day out. There's things that we can reach out and touch and feel and experience with our senses 
But the scriptures also say that there are invisible realities that we don't get to touch and feel with our senses, but are no less real. And then Paul steps in and says Jesus is above or supreme to all things, both things that are visible and things that are invisible. Jesus is superior to all dominions, to all rulers, to all authorities. No other human king or elected official or ruler deserves our worship and allegiance the way the person of Jesus Christ does. He is above all things and he is supreme over all things. And that's why the scriptures talk about how the created order worships God. They lift up and reflect and celebrate his supremacy and his preeminence. And it's why when we gather for worship, we join our voices with the created world in declaring that Jesus is the essential element to all things. Not just things that are visible, but also things that are invisible. One person wrote, Jesus is the larger context and plot in which our stories find themselves. So Paul makes this powerful case that Jesus is supreme to all things in this world. But the next thing that he wants us to see is the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the church. And he talks about this in verses 18 to 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, after Jesus uh, had lived his life, uh, made his sacrifice on the cross, uh, uh, resurrected from the dead and and visited uh, with his followers, he uh, ascended into heaven and he left behind uh, this thing that we call the church. It was led, uh, right after Jesus ascended into heaven, it was led by uh, a group of kind of ragtag folks who were doubters uh, and skeptics and people known uh, for their mistakes. But despite all of that, this institution, this thing called the church, was to be the agent for transformation in the ancient world. And what I believe is that the same thing is true of this thing called the church today. You and I, as we sit here this morning and as other believers sit in churches like this all over the city and all over the country, we're all a bunch of ragtag people. We're full of sins and missteps. We're doubters and we're skeptics. We are just as flawed as those first believers were that we read about in the Bible. And yet, despite all that, the church is still called to be the primary agent for the transformation of this world. But what Paul is arguing is that the church will only and ever only be effective if it is rooted in Christ, who is our head, verse 18, and for what he has done for us that we read about in verse 20. You see, Jesus has purchased us. He has bought us back. He has redeemed us. He has justified us or made us right before God the Father because he has made peace through his blood, Paul talks about. And the scriptures also go along to call the church his bride. 
That when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ and become a part of this thing called the church, we become married to God. We are his bride. He makes vows to us. He covenants himself to us. What's remarkable about, about this is that we were once God's enemies. And yet, because of Jesus, we cannot just be made friends, but we can be made sons and daughters of the King. He did all of this through his perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus is the reason that this church and all churches exist. And he is the head of the church. And because of that, it means that in everything that we do as a church, Christ needs to be supreme. He needs to be the center of everything that we do. Now, sadly, the the idea of church, or in some ways the belief in the church, has been lost or in some ways changed uh, in our culture. Uh, I was reading a book by uh, Eugene Peterson, who's a well-known author and was a pastor of a church not far from here, a very small church not far from here, up in Bel Air, Maryland. And uh, one of the things he advocated for very strongly is what it means to be a church. And he wrote this about pastors, especially pastors uh, in America. So I had to take notice of this. He said, the pastors of of America have metamorphed into a company of shopkeepers. And the shops that they keep are churches. They are preoccupied with shopkeepers' concerns, how to keep the customers happy, and how to lure new customers away from competitors down the street. I really had to think about that when I read that. In some ways, what he's arguing for is that culturally, we have strayed from the idea of what the church is supposed to be. In some cases, we've, the church has simply become a means uh, for us to feel good or affirm or rubber stamp our lives that are centered around a middle class American dream. And tragically, tragically, in the process, sometimes Christ disappears from the church. What makes that so sad is because the very thing that makes the church different from anything else is Christ and Christ alone. You see, other organizations in this world can offer really helpful tips for life and for marriage and financial freedom. Other organizations can host wonderful dinners and events. Other organizations can promote uh, morality and help us raise our kids with some sort of moral framework. Other organizations can do a good job of social justice and poverty alleviation and building strong communities. And the truth is, often these other organizations do a better job of all these things than the church does. But the thing that makes us different than anything else The thing that sets the church apart from any other human institution is the person of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't do all those other things and we don't try very hard to do all those other things well. It just simply means that if we lose Christ, we lose the very thing that we exist for. We lose the essential element of what it means to be the church. Christ is the essential element in the world 
but he is also the essential element in the church. But that's not all Paul wants us to see. Finally, he shows us the supremacy of Christ in his people. And we read about it in verses 21 to 23. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see, the book of Colossians is this really affectionate letter. It's dripping with affection of Paul to these believers in the church in Colossae. And what Paul does is he reminds these believers of their personal story as it relates to Jesus Christ. He reminds them that at one point they were estranged from God, that they were enemies of him, but then Christ came to reconcile them, to make what was once estranged a part of the family. What he reminds them is that we no longer as individuals need to be defined by by our sins and our missteps. Instead, we can be defined by our position in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you uh, f- follow the sports world. Uh, I sp- usually stay more up to date on sports news than I do real news. Uh, but uh, I was fascinated by a story that uh, came out of uh, Princeton University this week, and in particular, uh, the Princeton University uh, lacrosse program. Uh, I learned this week that uh, uh, right in the middle of the season, uh, the Princeton University uh, lacrosse coach was fired uh, very suddenly. And the reason they gave is because he became uh, too physically aggressive with uh, a player on the sidelines during the game. I don't know whether he got caught up in the game or whatever it was, but uh, he became just a little too physically aggressive. And because of that, uh, he was fired uh, the next week. What's made this a really interesting story is it seemed very out of character for this coach. Uh, anybody that you talk to says that, uh, that he was a man of a very high, respectable character. Uh, he was loved. Uh, he was celebrated. Many people uh, respected and admired him. Uh, and it also went on to say that uh, even just recently he had lost, it was either a wife or a child, to a battle uh, with cancer. And uh, his team walked with him all throughout that process and were amazed at the poise and the leadership that he uh, carried himself with during this tragic time in his life as he coached this program. And yet, in a split second, it was all over. In a split second, he put his hands on an athlete and his career was finished. No matter how much of a high moral character he had, no matter how much he was respected by everyone else, he as a person, at least in the coaching world, will now only and ever be defined by his greatest mistake. So sad. But friends, it's easy. We can relate because it's easy for us to think that we as well are defined by our sins and by our missteps. They are the things that do uh, condemn us before God, but in Christ, we can be defined by something very different. 
in Christ, we can be called, as the passage says, holy and blameless and above reproach. Not because we are holy, blameless, and above reproach, but instead because of what Christ has done for us on our behalf. I want to say uh, a quick note about verse uh, 23 because it seems to say something at face value that I think is a little different than what Paul is really trying to say in the overall message. It seems at face, at face value to say that, that our salvation and our persevering in the faith is really up to us. It seems to say that we can be called holy and blameless and above reproach if in our kind of human effort we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we hold fast as hard as we can. But I actually believe that that is the opposite of what Paul is really trying to say because it's the opposite of his entire argument in the book of Colossians. Because in the book, he argues that we are not only made right before God by grace, but that we remain and grow in the faith by being rooted in this gospel of grace. See, I think what Paul is speaking of here is he's speaking about those who at one point claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ, but yet ultimately walked away for many different reasons, whether it's the difficulties of life or the pressures of the faith. And what Paul is saying is their walking away is proof that they were actually never in Christ in the first place. I think this is a really important point as we look at this verse, and here's why. It's important because you and I get tripped up with this because our natural tendency is to always make our faith about ourselves and about our personal effort. And when we do that, when we give in to that temptation, our faith becomes more about our own self-absorption because ultimately we want to steal all the glory away from God for our salvation. But what Paul is saying here is that our faith from start to finish, from A to Z, is about Christ and about the grace of the gospel. Uh, If you know me, you know one of my favorite uh, authors is um, uh, David Brooks, who uh, is a columnist for the New York Times. You'll run into him uh, on NPR from time to time. You'll see him on PBS from time to time. And uh, he just recently wrote uh, what's become, I think, a best-selling book uh, called The Road to Character. And uh, it's a great book. I don't think David Brooks is a believer. Uh, I'm not really sure where he kind of is in terms of his faith, but he writes very powerfully about culture. And in one of the chapters, I think it's one of the last chapters, he writes uh, about our culture. And he says what we've fallen into is a culture of the big me. Okay, and that's what he means by that is we've we've become a culture that's just centered around ourselves. He calls it uh, the age of the selfie at one point uh, in his chapter. And what he says is the byproduct of this culture that we live in now is a culture that is kind of borderline narcissistic, that in some ways is, is obsessed with itself. 
He says, we look inside of us to try to find meaning in life and to try to find self-actualization in life. And we end up talking endlessly about ourselves and we carefully manufacture ourselves and our identities uh, over social media as we spend time on that. And what he argues is, is in the process, we've just simply become obsessed with ourselves with finding our own meaning, finding ourselves, meeting our own needs, living our dreams through self-fulfillment and personal discovery. But in the end, and this is the most powerful assessment of it all, in the end, what he says is it's making us miserable. Reminded me of a quote uh, of Tim Keller, who's a pastor, who said this, there's nothing that makes you more miserable and less interesting than self absorption. You see, in the end, we all like to make ourselves the central character of our stories instead of Jesus Christ. But what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ at its essence, at its most essential element, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is recognizing that the most essential element of our lives is not ourselves. It's Jesus. He's the essential character of our story. He is the only one who can truly meet our needs. And only in him can we discover life, life abundantly. Paul makes a really powerful argument in this passage. He tells us that Jesus is supreme in our world. He's supreme in the cosmos. He's supreme in the church. And ultimately, as followers of him, He is to be supreme in our lives as well. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who's a famous pastor, sums it up perfectly in this one statement. He says this, I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. Let's pray.